from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio. Looking out onto Locust Walk on a mild, beautiful October morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Happy to say that Audie Weiner's here. Shane Jensen is here. And Eric Bradlow is here. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, wow. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning to do this thing. You guys can jump in here and join us. We wish you would. Give us a shout. Next half hour is a great time to give us a shout. Open lines. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can email us. We're still taking emails, even live during the show. Business radio at crsxm dot com, or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball is our handle up there at wmoneyball. Great way to reach out to us. We follow the whole world of sports analytics. Our guests. You can complain. You can suggest topics. You can ask questions at wmoneyball on Twitter. Regular show today in that we have a guest at the bottom of this hour and the top of next hour. Football fellows both times. Two different flavors, though. American and then non-American football, which would be soccer in most people's language. We've got Michael Lopez from the NFL coming up at the bottom of the, half, bottom of the hour. And then we have a great uh, guest from the soccer world coming up in one hour. Guys, open lines between now and then. We have a few things going on. It feels like one of the busier times of year. Yeah, October, I think, is the best sports month of the year. Oh, stop it. I mean, it is, but it's very sad right now. So. Oh, no, it got a lot better the last <laughs> week. I got way more stoked about it. It, 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 is, it is sad. Right. The Longhorns just have not oh, been they yeah, no, like not performing to be. Yeah. But there's some great analytics questions that come out of the Yankees' devastating loss that we should probably... We should, uplifting? There's all kinds of uh, Uplifting, but we should use. talk about it. I mean, because they're, they're, they're sort of decision-oriented <laughs> oh, stuff that we don't... We're still processing the Yankees game, I guess. It was, oh, it it was Saturday night. I mean, ago, come yeah. on, we haven't had a show yeah. in between. What, what is this, Kate? No, no, no. no I, we, the World we, we, Series we, has we, started We definitely should talk about baseball right now. I have two questions. I want to hear you guys' thoughts. So so as I'm watching Chapman face... Altuve, the, the thing that's coming to oh, my hold mind. Hold on, remind me what happened in that. Oh, God. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Chapman and Altuve. All right, well, so the Yankees came back in the this ninth. This was the bottom are, of the ninth. Are you kidding? Top of the ninth, <laughs> they came back. Is Chapman, a good, is Chapman a good pitcher to he have? Is, he is. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. is a good pitcher. Oh, so the, the best, question is, really. it's, it's, oh. not, it's not the issue whether you should be taking Chapman out. Should, be, should he be pitching around Altuve with the defensive replacement up next? And uh, two outs and a runner on first. So the and it really is something that probably should be worked out because and, and the thing that we talk about in analytics in, in baseball all the time is how much of the matchups do they matter? I mean, Chapman's a great pitcher. Altuve is a great hitter. The guy next is te- is terrible. So do you walk Altuve to face the terrible hitter and get out of the situation only to have to face you know you have to you have to win the game so you have to go to the tenth inning anyway? Can, can you remind me? Uh, I actually forget. Was the man who was already on base on first? Or? He was on first. On first, and yeah. That, of course, so you would be moving somebody into scoring position. Absolutely. So you're, you're, you're essentially losing the game on a single as opposed to losing the game on an extra base hit or yeah. a home run. So it seems to me that the right thing to do is to pitch him to him and pitch carefully. But I haven't worked out the math. Yeah. And I'm sure somebody I, other, I, I other people might I think the bigger have. analytics question came, so once it was a 2-0 count, right. and you had already tried to get him to swing at a bad pitch, at that point you basically say, okay, look, 
we're going to plan B. We're going to walk him. Right. We're not going to try to challenge him because a 110 hitter is coming up next. And so that, to me, is the bigger issue, which is, look, I would pitch to him, throw him balls outside of the strike zone. Yeah. Maybe he swings. Maybe he doesn't because he's known to swing at anything. He didn't. Walk right, him when it's him a 2-0. Yeah. So to me, it just there wasn't continuous Did, Eric, were you screaming at the TV to, to walk him like I was at that point at 2-0? I was saying once it got to 2-0. and yes. How often does that happen? I'm curious. Obviously, we know about intentional walks, and we know about <clears throat> accidental walks, but do people often switch mid at bat? You, oh, you, see, you see increasingly it's almost like the intentional, the unintentional intentional walk is what I call it. I mean, it's... it's um, where they they definitely don't get, really give them any kind of pitch to hit. They're just kind okay. of hoping they're they're picking away at the sides and hoping that they somehow get a lucky strikeout, basically. But okay. I think what was clear though from the previous batter at that time was that Chapman just all of a sudden, which happens to Chapman, is he has, he has lost his Loses control, his on, yeah. and so he just couldn't like that pitch to Altuve. Obviously, it wasn't like he was trying to throw it right there. He just had lost control yep. and command of the strike zone. But I think this is a, a greater question in yeah. baseball, which is something that that I know is true, but. It doesn't seem to to affect the operations on, uh, strategically. Pitchers change. Do they change in the middle of a of an outing? I'm not so sure. But Chapman sort of did look like the way, but that could just be randomness and us over interpreting just random fluctuations. But one of the things that they, that that uh, that Boone does excessively. I mean, he's got the depth in his bullpen to do it, which is basically pull pitchers kind of constantly, roll through six relievers. At first, it slows up the game bizarrely, but it'll go with one one at-bat, two at-bats, guy for an inning. And the thing that I think is interesting about this is that if you believe that pitchers are uh, are not just random at-bat to at-bat, but actually are different at-bat, or not at-bat to at-bat, but outing to outing, if you see a pitcher who might ordinarily be, say, good, say, green, and he comes out and he looks amazing. Why are you not holding him in there? That's and, everybody's question. And, that's the and, question. Hold, on, hold on, is it everybody's question? Because that sounds like a sophisticated, relatively And I don't think anybody has question. ever looked at that, whether the whether you... At the, at, we've looked at it at the it's, starters. We see it at the starters clearly, because there's enough innings to, to verify it. But with relievers, I've never let, actually let seen me, that done. Let me try, because let me try to understand what you're saying. You're saying there's so much... That there's more. There's more within pitcher variation. Outing to outing. Yes. With, within pitcher variation, basically. Then, then we. I'm going to say. Then we generally think. We think it's between. We think it's all about between pitcher variation. We got to get the right no. guy. Just right. let me try it for a little longer. We try to get the right guy into the right spot, and we don't consider sufficiently that. Well, it's not one fixed performance guy. There's variation on that guy, and so you're saying if that's true, and we get him in there. Now the va- there's a lot of value in information. We watch that guy for an at bat, a two at bats, and we find out which version of him we're getting. Right. Yeah. And so you get it's very informative, but that that's only useful if you actually act on it. That's right. Yeah. Bingo. And and clearly Boone does not do that. And I don't know whether that's the advice of his formidable analytics crew. I don't know what they, whether they listen to them or not. But the Yankees have an enormous staff, and they're they know what they're doing. I think probably only tap uh, top. Well, do, and, do, well, I mean, what you need to do is: are are there certain teams that do do this? You could look at. I don't think so. Variation like for for relief pitchers, how much variation is, there is in the length of their outing, and whether that kind of maps to the quality of their performance. I think there's or two not. separate issues: is that which managers are doing it? Yeah, and if there's a separate, is it actually a, a good thing to do? Like, I'll go yeah. back to Kate's description. Every pitcher. Is has a kind of a bimodal set of performances, the good ones and the bad ones. Can you tell after a very small sample size which of the two you're getting? And if the and by the way, 
the assumption that it's right. outing by outing, which is Adi's point, it's not batter to batter. That's a first assumption that we don't yeah, know if that's, that's right. true either. Yeah. But right. if it is true, I've always asked that question. Like, why are you taking out pitcher X if pitcher X has blown through the first two hitters? Should, apparently, today must be the good control day for right. the pitcher. Why are you doing that? But also, yeah. on the other I'd end, love look, to see that analysis. Let's, let's, let's talk about our, our other disasters. Last year, Severino came out in the final game against the Red Sox, and he looked <clears> terrible. And instead of pulling him after two batters at inning, they let him go three innings to put the game out of reach. I mean, just somehow this it was his first game three of the maybe it was a th- it was, yeah, it was it the, the one that I was game, there it, it was, was it was just terrible like the nineteen three game <laughs> okay or thank you yeah, thank yeah. you Shane for for no I was just clarifying because I I, did, I mean it would be yeah, like it would game. be like Boone to bring that guy back for game five I mean right. just to forget well, about it well if we're going to bring up another kind of but, broad statistical show the other obviously thing that came with baseball and then we should get to the teams that are actually still playing but was you know they say now this is the first decade in since nineteen tens that the Yankees had not made the World Series so then I started to think they didn't they haven't made the world series and forget winning it they haven't made it since 2009 the 80s was barely i know but then i was starting to say to myself so how rare is that so i did a very simple calculation maybe it's one of these envelope calculations if you want let's imagine you said any given year the yankees have a 10 percent chance of making the world series i don't know that it's larger than that but let's just say it was 10 percent. the way i came up with that i'll tell you how i came up with it Let's say that there's a 40% chance they win their division. I'm putting that equal with the Red Sox, and then I'm giving everybody else some percent. And then there's a 25% chance they you know win they win two rounds. That's coin flipping, yeah. Shane Jensen rule. That gives you a 10% chance. If they have a 10% chance each of 10 years, first of all, the expected number is one. Well, yeah. The variance is about one. And if you just do one minus 0.9 to the 10th, that's about 65%. Yeah. So it's actually not that rare. And the thing that bothers people is because they have a $200 million plus payroll and they're not making the World Series. But if you just think about probabilistically, we'll, we'll it's it, not we'll that flip it around shocking. And, we'll flip it around then and ask the probability that they would make it for 10 decades in a row. Give us that one. So, okay, besides, so it's, it's, it's not the lack of making it that's so rare. It's having made it 10 decades in a row that's yeah. a little more rare. I think that's, pro- I think that's right. I think that is. I mean, it would be, I, I mean, it would be a good envelope calculation. It would be kind of flawed given the reality of the situation. Massively. For, I mean, they're for highly, many highly decades con- there, they kind right. of were not exactly yeah, guaranteed even, yeah. to make the World Series, but it was much higher than 10%. Well, let's talk about – that's, I think, yeah. the more interesting question here at the end is, okay – as something happened systematically in the league that has decreased the Yankees' preeminence. Yes. Yeah. And what is that thing? Well, it's interesting because I, I would... Free I would have, well, free no, agency. No, it's, it's, and... it's, no, it's also, I mean, it's for, certainly free agency. I think it's, I th- I think it's the, the spread of analytics. Everyone really does a good job. One of the things that, that you look at, at the rela- relationship between wins and payroll... It's a lot weaker than you than than you would think. It's it's. Uh, I mean, football. It's essentially zero. Well, the, the but Indians it, and A's screw that up pretty dramatically. The Indians yeah. and A's, and actually the Cardinals do too. It's uh, Cardinals good, good are under, under the Red Sox represent. do their part um, too by being alternating between being amazing and terrible. <laughs> that's true. But I so think, that, I think let's the, give some credit uh, to them. I think the issue is is that is that um, I think you can clearly with a lot of money you can probably buy yourself high playoff chances, way better than one in ten with. But winning or even entering the World so Series, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, like you, I mean, even if I, I do think payroll does give you a pretty high chance of making the playoffs, but then you got to hit those, then you got to win two series. Well, when's the last question? When's the last time? Maybe I just I'm just forgetting it. When's the last time the Yankees bought, if you'd like, an elite pitcher free agent? 
Sabathia? <laughs> no, no, that's oh, my Paxton. No, no, no. I mean, well, Paxton, I don't know yeah. if he's elite. He's, he's not elite. even elite. No, he's a no, third starter. No, no, no. I'm just commenting. So this is back to of what the we catfish about. hunter era. This is what we talked about last week, which is if you need two or three great pitchers to to make it to the World Chapman Series, doesn't count. you want to start? No, 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 no. no, no. That's pitcher. a reliever. Oh, okay. That's a reliever. I'm sorry. That's a good point. I meant starting pitcher. The Yankees don't have. In my view, right now, Severino, when he's healthy, but he wasn't. He was a, came out, He came up through their system. When is the last time the Yankees, instead of investing in Encarnacion or Stanton or etc., when's the last time they spent two hundred million dollars on an elite starting pitcher? I can't remember when they, the last well, time that Sabathia is. Well, Sabathia probably. Okay, I, well that was two thousand and eight. I know that it's was the last right. time they made the World Series. Two thousand nine. He came in in the middle of that season. Yeah, that was the last time it, they made the World Series. You wonder how. I mean, at that given that long time, you wonder how philosophical it is. And I'm under the impression that the Cubs, for example, have pursued the exact opposite philosophy. Correct. Which is and the Astros gonna, also. So they, their philosophy is we can grow position players, but exactly. they're, too, they're too hard to grow pitchers. So we'll let them sort themselves yeah. out, and then we'll buy the, the yeah, ones Yeah, Verlander and Cole are homegrown Astros. They both came. Mm-hmm. We were just discussing. Cole yes. wasn't even well, I mean, the, the Astros have an even uh, more like uh, chess move where they figure out which uh, starters underperforming in their current team and get those guys and fix them underperforming in a way that they can fix. Yeah, yeah. in a way that yeah, they yeah. can yeah. fix. Okay, I mean, so, but I mean, it's true that the Yankees still are doing the big free agent acquisitions. They're just they haven't been focusing on starting pitching for the last decade. Okay, speaking of Cole, what happened last night? The, the Nationals won, and Cole got was got to. I mean, it's hard to know. This is what I'm asking. This I, is, I, I mean, listen, it's the first time he's lost in about what 20, something like 20 starts. But uh, I, I, I would team. I would argue he, he. I don't think he pitched any worse last night than no. he pitched in that last Let's game re- against the Yankees. Just to remind just everybody, was, we talked about this yeah. on the air. Here's how Cole did against the Yankees the last time he pitched in the first five innings. Yankees left three men on, two men yeah. on, one man yeah, on, two right. men on, two men on. Yeah. So they left ten batters on in the first five innings. What happened yesterday? One guy got a clutch hit. A couple guys got clutch hits. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, it, so that it, it wasn't like his performance. I like the yeah. way you said it. It wasn't like his performance was that much different than his last outing. Yeah. What what advanced stats should we be using to to understand the fundamentals of his performance? So what what can we know about what he did? Not how many guys were left on base, but like what he did with the ball, for example, or what he did against the guys at the well, plate. The, what they often look at is chase rate, strikeout rate. I don't know what those numbers are. The, this measures the eff, you know the efficacy of your stuff, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's chase rate? Chase rate is uh, balls out of the zone that you swing at. Yeah. It's a very valuable, very and predictive it, it, it statistic. Is, I mean, I, and again, I don't, I, I didn't get the numbers to back it up, but I do remember at some point on the broadcast they did say that the Astros are the best in in the major leagues in terms of not swinging at balls outside the mm-hmm. strike zone, mm-hmm. and this is something that. Um, the Nationals rely on well, can't we heavily. Just, can't we do what? So they, they, at, the, at the time when this point was brought up, it was <laughs> right. it was to explain why Scherzer was kind of struggling in a relative Scherzer sense last night. Wait, okay. he, he also did not have, by his standards, a particularly good stuff, game. Yeah. He you know only lasted five six. But innings. just maybe to look at Cade's point, um, you know, right now even when you watch baseball on TV, you see let's say a, a nine zone region for each batter yeah. where they show the batting average, right? So why couldn't we do the following? Why couldn't we just look at every pitch that Garrett Cole throw to which batter? We let's say we create a grid of how that batter performs in that zone. We have and that's based on a large number of at bats, certainly across the whole season. We look at the expected number of runs or the expected performance given where he threw the ball, and we compare that to the actual. And so in some sense we're just gonna be pure empiricists. Yeah. We're gonna just you know, grid up the zone and see 
where are her where is this pitch is going and what actually it, happens. The, the, my only reservation about that is you don't want to do it on a per batter basis because you're going to be over reading small samples to each batter. Right? I'm just but assuming maybe, but, that it was large enough for each and, batter. And, but and, maybe and, not. and at an even coarser aggregation, you yeah. can just assume that his placement was about the same as it was usually. It just and then you can just look at WHIP or something like you know. I mean, you can look at the aggregate statistics okay. also as a but, measure. But of one of the things that I keep bringing up with these pitchers and Cole is an example who's a supreme strikeout pitcher. He's the first person to pitch over. 300 strikeouts in, in some time, which is an amazing f- accomplishment. They are able to, and he certainly did it against the Yankees, sort of bear down when necessary and get that strikeout. And that's something that, that the analysts t- like to scoff at. You, you know, you pitch I, as I best as you can. I and you see a little bit last time. week. But, you know, you, see, you do see it happening. And this is, and, and, and <laughs> it's, a, it's a component of the game that gets completely discounted by, by statisticians and analysts. The, love the IID assumption. We just cannot. I, it's hard remind, for, remind us again. IID. Independent, identically distributed. So that Nicole is the same pitcher every time. It's not a different one. He doesn't have different approaches. He doesn't back off. And that is something and, and that... the statisticians love this because it's so helpful oh, to their analysis. Oh, yes. It's it, necessary. It's, really. it's in some sense absolutely well, it's great simplify. Anyway. But also, we also tend to walk away from the idea that performance in in a particular constant context is different or gets differently valued than a performance in another. So when you really do great with with bases loaded and you strike someone out, that is that counts as the same strikeout as two outs and nobody on in the in a blowout. Okay, so fellas, last night the Nats win. They win in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the Astros, super exciting game. Astros dropped the first game to the Yankees yep. in, in Houston. Even in, in, in more, in, but not with Cole pitching. But yes, yeah, right, exactly. This is my question. Of course, the Senators now have an advantage. I mean, the, the Senators, Nats, the Nats, oh, Senators, I love it. The Nats have an advantage because they're up one. But other than that, did we learn anything? Can you learn anything from a single game in baseball about a matchup, about where a team is right now, where a guy's stuff is right now? Do you update it all other than just Come on, the one momentum? Well, Soto. Uh, well, I'll say He's the amazing. following. Well, let me just say He's the following. Hot. I'm going to answer the question, but in a semi-indirect way. Something that shocked Shane and I when we walked in this morning. So Matt Datz, our producer, put the a lot of odds in front of us. Right now, betting line has the Astros and Nationals as equal. Now, that's a little... I know the Astros were a big favorite going in, no. but the Nationals are up 1-0. Yeah. And even then, now it just has them as equal. So I would say the following... Um, a massive amount of, I don't know if it's momentum or not, although the Nationals have it. Um, Verlander better win tonight's game for the Astros. I'll say it again. It's the same thing that they, by the way, the Astros said this when they faced the Yankees. If, you know, the Yankees had won game two, which remember, they were leading game two against the Astros, against Verlander in that game. They ended up losing the game. That was the game they lost on the Correa home run in extra innings, in the 12th inning or something like that. Jeez. If they lose, yeah, and I'm saying you could make an argument. The Yankees are, I mean, one or two batters away. Yeah. If they win they game out, two, they out hit and they outpitch the Astros over six games. That's, they didn't that's win. A fact. <laughs> no, okay. yeah. no, no, I, I'm those, not, it's just a point. It's a fact. This yep, reminds me. I, I read I, this. Somebody tweeted this. They, this was a woman. She said, I'm, "I'm in." She said it was like me in New York. Um, my husband in Houston. I want you to go down to the hotel in the lobby and describe for me the pain of the Yankees man. It's, it's oh. amazing. The Schadenfreude. Yeah. You guys are crazy. And by the way, do you put any, if you want to talk about Menem, do you put anything into the fact that the last five games that Verlander has started, the Astros have lost? It's just true. Well, you they know, didn't in game two. Last, yeah, he's lost. Five. Five. 
Yeah, well, I mean, yep. this, this, I'm, there they are, and there we're not. <laughs> yeah. so I had that reaction this morning, even though I didn't. I, I, I think I've just, by, by, yeah. because we've been talking about it for a few weeks, whenever I saw that Verlander was up for game two, down 1-0, my, my instinctive response was, hmm. As an Astros fan, I was like, dead gum. Yeah. Because he just doesn't seem to have, I mean, again, I'm not, this is just not even eyeballs. This is like listening over the last few weeks. Doesn't seem to have. You know his up to his reputation lately, guys. This has been Wharton Moneyball. We're 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 going to be here for the next hour and a half, hour forty five. You guys can jump in one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six or hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball. Whole crew is here: Shane, Adi, Eric, and Kate. Guys, uh, basketball starts. Basketball started last night. Yeah. We've got it starting today in Philadelphia. Boston's down for the home opener for the Sixers, but last night we had two games. I think the Raptors opened against New Orleans, but more they did. More interestingly, the LA teams faced off. They did in a late game, and uh, apparently Kawhi Leonard went kind of strong, and, and the Clips knocked off the Lakers. Well, I'm going to say what I said again. Here's what concerns me about the Lakers. Okay, the best player in my view now on the Lakers may not be LeBron James. Ooh. It might be Anthony Davis. Let me say why I'm concerned about this. So in the fourth quarter of yesterday's game, I watched a fair amount of it. They had two points combined. LeBron had four turnovers. And this is after him playing about 30 minutes in the game. So here's my concern. The 36-year-old LeBron James. He's 36? Yep. Wow. At the end of games, well, he came into the league, I think, in 2003 was the year that he came into the league. And he was about 14, right? No, but he was 18. But yeah. he's been in the league. It's, a lot of years. I, it's also his number of minutes. A lot I know of you mileage, guys have seen yeah. the stats. He's played more minutes in his career now than Michael Jordan. He's clearly surpassed Michael Jordan even on the number of minutes okay. he played. So can he be the great LeBron James in the fourth quarter of games when teams really need him to be? And I understand this is one game, but you even started to see it even last year and the year before where he just can't like, he can't do what Kawhi Leonard did yeah. at the end of the game where Kawhi Leonard scored seven straight possessions for yeah. uh, for the Clippers last night. So that's my concern. If you think, well, Anthony Davis, you know I've said this for five and a half years on Wharton Moneyball. If the best player on your team is a center, you have a big problem in the NBA because you can't get that person the ball. And that's what happened. You could not get Anthony Davis the ball near the end of the game. All so right. then LeBron James just couldn't do it. And I think you're going to continue to see that throughout the season. Whereas I, I mean, I, I'm going to have to see LeBron James um, not look like LeBron James in the playoffs right. before I, agree I make with you. that against evaluation. Against the elite teams, yeah. it's, it's going to be against the elite teams that matter. Yeah, and I, and I mean. Again, I mean, so I don't know how to balance, you know, him not looking as good, especially just in one game, versus the fact that, like, I mean, if things have not fundamentally changed, the regular season, to a certain extent, is not a particularly great estimate of what is going to happen in the playoffs. Well, it's not. Right? It, it, it's. I mean, related. if they don't make it's, the playoffs, then it's pre- quite predictive of how well he does in the playoffs. We know but, this. We know. I mean, 538 may be the only people that have publicly tried to model this, but they they explicitly acknowledge yeah. they, have to, they have to alter their model for playoff performance versus regular season performance, which tells you something dramatic. Yeah, the other shocking was, stat from last night's game, I looked at the box score, I almost thought it was wrong, but the uh, Clippers bench way outscored the starters. The Clippers bench had 60 points last night, and the Lakers bench had 19 points, I love which this. was another thought, which was wow. just, that was the one stat that st- stood out at me. It's like, like... The starters for the Can you Cl- turn that in per minute? Or? 
Yeah, I think it probably, I mean... 16 to 19 has to do with time, I would guess, predominantly. That's a good question. I have I didn't look at it on a total number of minutes. Yeah, but even, so the very even fact that they're going to their even, bench yeah, more often in the game that's is a good also thing. telling. Exactly. If you're, willing, if, you're, if you're willing and able to put yeah. in your back. But I'm just looking through the list here that, uh, that Matty Dats provide for us. It looks like the Sixers are maybe second best team forecasted. Is that... The Sixers? Uh, well, yeah. I'm looking at the list here, other than the Bucks. You mean out of the East? I mean, yes. Yeah, well, I'm just looking. Well, at no, the it's in terms of, of expected number yeah. of wins, but that's not surprising, right? Because but that's a different schedule. Look, the, the 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 market for the for the championship is what you want for best team. So right now, Clippers and Lakers are about even at plus five hundred, plus five fifty, and the Bucks out of the East. Yeah, are but right what there, do you notice? Right there with them. The now, Clippers, the six, the the Bucks are the only other team in the East on that list. So yeah. that's why the Sixers are. How, well, you the know, Sixers, I'd rather right. be the Sixers right now. Let's say than possibly even a. I'd rather be the Sixers. I know they're equal betting odds. I'd rather be the Sixers than the Rockets right now when it comes to making the finals. Sure, yep. you got fewer teams mm-hmm. to go through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but Definitely. I mean this is I mean, this is, the story is too simple. This is the story right now in the East that it's a two team race, and I just have a little bit of a hard time believing that at the end of the season it's still going to be a two team. Yeah. I mean things are get more complicated than that. The Celtics, I think the Celtics could people are sleeping a little bit I on, think the they're sleeping on the Celtics. Can I ask Celtics a general also? question? How well does basketball forecast from the beginning of the year to the end of the year? I know what those stats are for baseball, but basketball, I thought it's the best. Is it is it the best of the most forecastable? I mean, pre-season? I think in the in, in the overall, like if you did like a full rankings, like one to thirty-two yeah. teams, yes, just because there is such a disparity, I think right. between the top teams and the bottom teams, you're going to get a pretty decent correlation out of that. Let me jump on that and say, and given the dynasty that we've just been yes, watching, right, that's right, that the very very top also yeah. quite predictable. Yeah, yeah. So those things are going to. I think the answer is yes of the four sports, but we're trying to come up with a way in which is not quite as deterministic as it might feel because we have seen. You know, the bottom we don't really care about, and the top has been so There's dynamic. a lot of movement in the no, middle. I, I think, well, this like, is what well, yeah. going to be my point. I think if you try to predict the 16 teams in the playoffs right now for the NBA, okay, I think it was back to Cade's point. I think you'd get the top extremely right. You'd get which teams are clearly out extremely right. And in most measurement scales, it's right at the cut line where there's the greatest uncertainty. But you'd probably could get 14 of the 16 yeah. teams right without much effort. Well, that's an impressive uh, I assumption. Believe, yeah, I, I, you don't believe that. No, you don't think too strong, no. too strong. Well, let's do it next week. I, we, we, should, we, should do it. we should also look at what they were last year. It's, it's, uh, it takes a little digging to figure out what the, what the preseason forecasts were well, in each season. But, the reason but, I'm but making Eric, that number, but, let me say what I'm saying. That's strong. Your argument works against you. I totally buy your argument. You're drawing a line in the middle of the distribution, we know that's the tight, most tightly packed no, no. part of the distribution. No, no, but here's the thing: if you look at the if you look at the distribution of standings at the end of NBA seasons, what you typically see is after, let's say, the tenth team in each conference, there's a massive drop off. Yeah, but you you want to know that in advance? That's <laughs> no, the no, 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 no. I do. I know in advance. I don't know which team is going to be eleventh, but I know that there's going to be a yeah, large number but, of teams. So, so I don't think this is my opinion. I think for the last, let's call it four spots, two in each conference. I think there's probably eight teams fighting for those four spots. But that's pretty okay. That's pretty bold. Can, okay, there's only two spots great, that are great fighting. Little, great little forecasting yeah, challenge yeah. for all of us. Um, but the interesting thing about this season, this is we've been talking about these dynasties, is we've had a dynasty, and, and then we've had before that, we've had the reign of LeBron. Yeah. So even though he's not a dynasty because he moves around, it's been LeBron and then the Warriors. That's been carrying the NBA 
for, I don't know, five or six years now, maybe longer if you go back to deeper into LeBron's history. This year we finally have a more open race. We have two mm-hmm. very legitimate contenders, you know, rivals, complete rivals in the West, and there will be more emerge. I mean, the Rockets aren't that far behind. We have two new non-LeBron teams in yeah. the East with the Rocket, Rockets, I mean, with the Bucks and the Sixers, and more behind them. So in, in I think I think it's quite clear this is the most interesting NBA preseason forecasting challenge and the most interesting season we've seen in a long time. No, I, I agree. I agree. I, I think it's sort of, uh, I mean, I, I, you, you know what I was like the last few years. We'd roll into this time of the year and we'd start talking about basketball and I'd be like, okay, f- yeah, sure, we can talk all we want. It's going to be the Warriors at the end. And it usually was. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of excited by the uncertainty of it. Are the you know? Warriors really out of it? I mean, is it because of yeah. Durant being out? Or? It's well, Clay, Clay, Clay Thompson, Thompson also. Clay Thompson. I mean, he comes back late season. They're right? saying. I just read an article yesterday. Doesn't make it right. They're saying now they think he may not play at all this season okay, at right, all. Right. But regardless, yeah. I mean, you take off Durant and Clay Thompson, and no, they're not a championship level team. I mean, yeah, not that AD. I. Not, they moved on. And Iguodala yeah, as well. Javon McGee left. So just, um, just a reminder, last year, just to talk about the disparity, we just ran through the odds for this year. Clippers plus 500, Lakers plus 550, Bucks plus 550, Rockets plus 800, Sixers plus 800. That's a nice little grouping. Last year, it was Warriors minus 165. To win would, the championship or to To win it? the championship. Okay. And the next highest was Boston at plus 700. That's the disparity and yeah. how, how uninteresting it was. You're saying basically. last year. Last yeah. year. Yeah, this and time of course, that was not right. No. no. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just but, saying the fourth. Apropos our previous conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Was, well, yeah, but the, but the point is the expectations were so yep. disparate and so kind of boring, essentially. All right, fellas, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with all of my buddies and faculty colleagues here at the Wharton School. Shane Jensen on my right, Eric Bradlow on my left, and Adi Weiner straight away. Adi is going to slip away to the classroom as he usually does on Wednesday mornings. We've got to get that changed, Adi. Future. In the future, man. No more Wednesday 9 o'clock classes. Come on, man. We hate losing you mid-show, but we've got him for another half hour, and it's important we have him for the next half hour because he's got questions for our next guest. Our next guest, Michael Lopez. As you may know, Michael is the director of data and analytics for the National Football League. The NFL has a director of data and analytics. Not a team. The league has a director of data and analytics. They created this job maybe a year and a half ago. They searched the world over and chose Lopez. Michael's a longtime friend of the show, frequent guest. He is he he is still a professor at Skidmore College. He maintained a position there as he moved over to the NFL, and he's been vital in the analytics revolution at the NFL. Michael, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kate, for having me on. I don't know if it was a worldwide search. They might have searched a, a couple of zip codes. <laughs> Come on, try to build you up, Michael. Try to build you up. There might have been a few people interested in that job. You know, that would have been an interesting uh, search to, to kibitz on. But they got Mike. Michael, you're an academic, and you've brought that academic um, attitude to the position. MLB has some people, but they don't have this 
kind of like let's show let's bring out data let's learn from it let's have competitions where where we feature what students are doing i think it's terrific so yep. to what extent did let's just build on that i mean to what extent did they tell you exactly what they wanted you to do versus they say hey come here and tell us what to do how, what was how much of your portfolio is self-directed it's, uh, it's probably a balance of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, realistically, there, there's a lot of, of weekly reporting we do in season, and and I think that 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 that's not going anywhere, and that that would be regardless of of who was in my position. Um, but I think there's also some ways that you know whether it's end of year analyses and, and bringing in some uh, novel you know football analytical ideas, or certainly with the big data bowl where you know where where some of what I'm I'm trying to do and grow the the analytics in the game is is sort of taking priority. Well, let's talk about the big data bowl. Audi, you you're going to Audi's teaching at nine. Michael's also going to teach at nine. Are are you up at Skidmore right now? I am. Yep. Ah, all right. So we've got to we've got to take care of business before we and we have some other questions for you. But let's jump into the big data bowl. You guys introduced this competition last year. And uh, you've revised it some this year. Can you give us a broad overview of what you're trying to accomplish? What is the competition, what you're trying to accomplish? And then we'll dive into some of the details this year. Yeah, the, the two main goals are, one, to crowdsource ideas into football player tracking. And the, the reality is teams got this basically for the first time on all, on all teams, on all players a year ago. And, and when I say this, they got the player positioning of the next-gen stats. So that is uh, roughly 10, coordinate, 10, 10 observations per second and it's wherever the players go on the field. And so teams have that information now, and the question is, well, what do we do with it? And so one is to crowdsource ideas, and the second is to create a pipeline so that folks that have this ability to analyze this data uh, can then go work for teams. And you know, re- reality is teams uh, would have a hard time identifying who those folks are if, if they can't see anyone who can do that type of – who has that type of skill set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you did this for the first time last year. You basically gave six, six games, I think, six games worth of data, and you posed, you posed a couple of questions. Six weeks. Six, I mean, six weeks worth and of data. And complete tracking data. Yep, the raw, the raw bare bones stuff. It was. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot, and then it was. You got some messy stuff in there, and you got to figure it out on your own for sure. So one of the things you've done is we're gonna we're gonna package it up for you guys a little. We're gonna save you some of the processing, I think. But more, you but you changed the competition fundamentally. Last time you said here are some data and here are some questions. Like how can we make sense of I don't know like receiver patterns or something. Yep. And this year you're doing it very differently, and we think this is very interesting. Audi, of course, has you know a, a, a kingdom of students here and 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 a lab that he runs, and so they'll be getting into this. They've, they're already into it. But it. Um, can we talk about the the the, cha- the structure you're like? What is the nature of the competition this year? So imagine a running back gets a handoff, and you're basically putting yourself in the position of the running back when he gets the handoff. Try to predict where he's going to end up. And obviously, when, when we're talking about running plays, we're, we're changing the tenor. Last year was sort of mostly about passing plays. This year, it's, it's where is the running back going to end up? And the idea is let's take, let's take the snapshot of the field when the running back gets the ball, almost to imagine yourself in that running back's shoes. And when we're talking about imagine yourself in the running back's shoes, that, that's where are you going to go? Where is the hole? How big is the hole? Where are you on the field? Is it important that you just get a first down, or are you trying for a, a, a bigger play? And so that's kind of the idea this year is that you're 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 at the you're giving probabilities for where each possible yard line is for the running back to end up. Mm-hmm. And how did why did you choose that particular question? It's an important one in football, and it's one that I think has not been answered yet. Which is that that we sort of have this idea, and and 
and the, the sort of headlines are running backs don't matter. And the reality is, is that we're trying to figure out how much of the running backs matter versus how much offensive lines matter, how much does scheme matter, and then maybe how much is sort of stuff that we can't explain even when we have that player tracking data. Mm-hmm. So just to, just, to, just to make that slightly more concrete, if you're trying to understand the relative contribution to the success of a running play between the offensive line and the running back, you, you're saying we need to do this first, basically. And one of the reasons might be because if you understand the expected gain given the positioning, you can then say, okay, how much do some running backs do better with comparable positions than others. And once yep. you have that variation on the running back, you start understanding how much is the line versus how much is the back. Is that an example? Yep, that's it. So, and it's, it's a metric that I think our teams want too, um, and not only our teams, but potentially the network. You can imagine right now on, on screen they're showing a, a completion percentage for uh, a certain catch. Well, you can imagine that the, the frame stops at the handoff and it says the running back has a, a this, this percentage chance of reaching the line of scrimmage, uh, the expected number of yards is this, and that way we can get a better sense of did running backs overperform or underperform on a given play. You know, this reminds me of the whole camera in, in poker. You kind of revolutionized right. poker yeah. because they, they, they can show the cards everyone has and they give expected, you know, expected wins, excess, excess, expected payout. You're saying, essentially, you can say, at this moment, the expected payout. Audie's raising his uh, okay, hand. Okay, so first of all, the poker analogy isn't quite right because that's based on just the probabilities of just show you the rest yes. of the hands. Yes. None of the play involved yes. that, that would change those probabilities. But I, I re- actually very Why interesting. Why is that not perfect analogy? <laughs> Because that's exactly, I mean, if, I mean. Well, because, you know, well, let's not get into the poker. That would be digressive here. But this, I'm very interested to hear what you said because I, I, now I really kind of understand why you're, you set up this, this competition up this way. Because what it looks from the outside is like a prediction contest as opposed to an, to an explanatory contest. So the previous one, we're trying to understand like how the roots, it was open-ended, explain football a little bit. This is, well, I want you to predict what happens in the run, not try to, not try to break it down by how much does the, the, the uh, running back contribute, how much the line contribute, how do the, the situations matter. And you also set it up, and I think this is the real, the real interesting one, you just keep, you keep throwing it out as, as sort of probabilities. But we don't want point estimates. You don't, you don't want the estimate, some, the median or an expected value. You want a full distribution, and you're being graded on that full distribution. You, you mean a full distribution of possible outcomes, that's basically right. yards gained. A, a full yeah. cumulative distribution on every possible value. Mm-hmm. And that's how the, the grading is. And what, what we're starting to figure out with our group is how much does the, sort of the, the median of that forecast matter, and how much does the concentration of that forecast around, uh, around that median matter? Mm-hmm. And I'm, 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 we haven't figured this out yet like can you be uh, where are you going to win this you're going to win it by finding a right. certain set of plays where you almost know for sure what is happening and you have a very tight oh. interval or are you going to win it by being unbiased and getting it well, <laughs> that's so is, interesting presumably you need both in your portfolio you do there are moments in a game where you want the certain and there are moments in the game when you want to roll the dice and so i'm not sure you're going to get the answer to the questions you want you might get a, a winner but not an answer well michael this is eric Prado. i just wanted to build on Audie's question when you just were thinking about this what is the I'll just use the term. What's the loss function? Like, you could imagine a loss function. You said your goal is to predict as many plays exactly right. That's obviously not what you're doing. No, no, no I'm just saying. I don't know what, so how, how it's going to work you, out. <laughs> how did you choose to, you know, because you could make very wide predictions and you'll get some hit. Or you could make very narrow ones. You'll get less hits. But when you're right, you'll be more accurate. So how are you guys thinking about that? Well, I think our, my first thought was just give a point estimate. And the issue with is that we're trying to do a live leaderboard over the last four weeks of the regular season. And if you, if, if you want to take a couple of risks and all you're doing is um, a point estimate, you could take a running back gets the ball 90 yards from the end zone, and you can give a prediction of 90. And the reality is if you're doing mean absolute error or mean squared error, that's going to be a major jump 
uh, in terms of, of, of your, your, where you are on the leaderboard. So we were worried about, about folks manipulating the, the sort of scoreboard to account for the fact that there are those outliers. So instead, we're, the, the sort of evaluation metric is what's called the continuous ranked probability score. And the idea is, right, you're given this probability, and it's some function of the probability. Um, you know, I haven't looked at all of the possible ways to sort of manipulate this score, but the hope is that by, in, by inserting probabilities as, as what we're sort of, what, what we're getting is we're getting the probabilities. The hope is that it's a combination of what you guys mentioned. It's, it's a combination of, uh, of something that was going to help provide accurate probabilities while also being able to give us a point estimate or even things like probability of being stuffed or probability of getting a first down or probability of getting a touchdown. All those types of things can be extracted once we get those uh, distributions. We're talking to Michael Lopez. Michael is the director of data and analytics at the NFL. He is also uh, an adjunct. He's a, he's an, as a stats prof and now an adjunct because he's working full time for the NFL at Skidmore, where he's teaching this morning at nine o'clock. We're talking about the Big Data Bowl innovation that Michael helped introduce last year. They're in their second year of it. We haven't talked about the process. You're you're referring to a leaderboard, and I've only heard a little bit of conversation about this. But the whole process is different than last year. And let's start with. How is it that teams are making these predictions? So, uh, actually, I, we don't know. <laughs> um, some, some but like what, on, what data? I mean, just even yeah, like oh, what yeah, data sure. they're using. So, we, we've shared the snapshot of handoff, uh, which, which is the where are the 22 players in the field uh, at once, once the running back gets the ball. And that is on all running plays from the 2017 and 2018 seasons. Uh, and I should say that's all handoff plays, so we're not counting kneel downs or we're not counting uh, direct snaps. And then the job there is to take those 22 observations, which have, which have all the speeds and the XY coordinates, accelerations, directions, orientations, and take those and, and derive features that will roughly uh, correspond to um, one row of, of, a, of a submission. And so you're going to take those, you're going to have some type of tool, um, whether it's a <clears throat> machine learning tool or something else that's going to allow you to get a, a distribution from, from those features that you derive from the 22 players. And Michael, also sharing down distance and yard line and some other sort of game level features. Yeah, right. So what else is in there? You, obviously, some the outcome. The, the outcome variable is simply how many yards are gained. Correct. But yep. so, And the game information is, is down, down distance, distance, yard teams, line. Weather. Weather, teams, score. Surface. Um, maybe even betting line ahead of time for expectations. There's lots of those kinds of... No, it's not. The betting line is not there. I mean, you have to sort of... You can get that information. Uh, I think the rules of the contest say you're not supposed to use it. No outside information. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. And then, so they've got all of these plays, and you're choosing it at the point of handoff? Correct. Yep, at the point of handoff. Like I said earlier, just sort of imagine yourself as the ball carrier. At At the point of the handoff, the ball carrier sort of has the same information you do. Where are players facing... Where is the double team? Do you have a pulling guard? Those types of things. Okay, this is terrific and wonderful. There are some contextual information around that you might want additional. So just real quickly, I mean, what about the play before or the the offensive tendencies or any or, or like, you know, play action versus have they been running play? Any, any of those kinds of considerations in there? Are there secondary, but or that, that would matter at some point, right? We might have just lost Michael. We heard we heard oh, some. Sorry, okay. no. This is uh, the fire alarm is going off in the building I'm in. <laughs> it's it's not too bad for us. It's really not too bad for, if you can put up All with right. it. Just no, I'm not, good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the the idea is that you just have that moment at handoff. Um, you could derive the way that the scoring is going is it, it's going in order of uh, one from you know by game from one play to the next, 
And so you could derive some of the previous things that have happened in the course of the game, um, but that would, okay. you would have to do that yourself. Got it. But here's my Got question. It. I think, isn't the evaluation supposed to be on future data? Are they also going to be done in order in that way? So if you, if you yep, build something... Exactly. So yeah, they will be... be in the same exact order as, this, as, the, uh, as the sort of evaluation period is now. Ah, I see. I, I, so you, so yes, I think that's that's definitely been misunderstood by my team. The, the, the assumption was is that you, you whatever you're supposed to submit, su- submit it should be invariant to permutations of the order of the data. Yep. The it's it's the the sort of way the play IDs are arranged is that it goes from one game to the next, and then within a game it goes from one play to the next in order as they happened. Okay. okay, this is the last feature of the contest I want to ask about because we're we're way down the, in the in the in the in the weeds here. But it's interesting. It's a forecasting challenge. It's interesting as a statistical technology it's interesting because teams are going to bring some very sophisticated tools to this i'm sure but i don't yet understand what is exactly what they're trying to predict and why is there a leaderboard actively running right now so i understand the modeling piece now i understand the data they're working with and the question and they're going to submit an algorithm essentially that says you can apply this to any snapshot in the future and it will give you our prediction for what's going to happen and then what snapshots do you apply that to in the future so the evaluation period now is being done on the first five weeks of the 2019 season. So folks that are participating now can't really see the outcomes of those plays. Um, you could you could certainly look them up on NFL.com, but that's not the sort of intent. The idea is that you're going to see the you know basically the the five weeks of data set that that's going to correspond to the eventual test data, and so you're going to be evaluated on week 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Each week that data is going to come in. I'm going to send it over to Kaggle. They're going to update the leaderboard given the, the submissions that folks have made. And so who's ever, whoever's doing well on the evaluation period now is likely going to be also be doing well. Um, but, but certainly it's the case that it's a new set of games, and, and your model has to be good enough to, to sort of work with new data. And that could mean new running backs. It could be uh, – it could be um, obviously it's going to be basically every handoff is different, so it's, it's a completely different set of plays, and you, you have to hope that your model is, uh, is sufficiently going to be able to handle that. And, and that's one of the real virtues of this contest, and that's, that's a defining feature of analysis in general is out-of-sample prediction. The, the best model, if you're, if what you're trying to understand, if, if, what, if we're trying to model what is really going on, you need to be able to, to show that it predicts out-of-sample, and you've designed the contest in order to do that which is great fun. Adi, I know you're going to have to slip away. We have a lot more questions for Michael, but do you want anything else before we... Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting competition, and one of the things that I find, uh, I think, one get clarified here is that the actual contest winner will be judged on those last four games or five games, not this first part. This is all just for fun. Yep, this is, this is like, uh, it, like, it kind of gives you a good sense of where you are, um, but realistically, being at first or... Um, 874th, uh, it, it does make a difference in terms of what will eventually happen. And it's entirely based on those last five weeks, and you know it, we're going in just as curious as everybody else is. We don't have any idea of the, the types of features that are going to be needed to win, uh, and we're, we're, but we're certainly excited to, to see where it goes. Are you a little worried that people are using these first 10 weeks as that are not part of the training set but are completely available to tune to, to their algorithms? Uh, not really, only in the sense that I just don't think it's going to help you that much on the uh, in, in the last five weeks. Um, th- realistically, you know, it's Kaggle's pretty used to this type of stuff. They're they're generally used to having um, data that nobody's seen before, and then they suddenly get introduced. So ours is just a little bit different in the sense that it's coming in live, and that it's 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 data that we haven't seen before. Whereas typically the the data that you know a company that would hold out on Kaggle, the, that data would be uh, sort of you know, hidden from the start, but the company already has it. We just don't have it yet. Uh, and that's kind of the, the sort of exciting and curiosity. 
Got it. Michael, let's let's step back and ask what your mission is more broadly. We've been talking about the Big Data Bowl in particular, but you've obviously got a, a bigger commission from the NFL. And you said the goal with the contest was to crowdsource some ideas for analyzing these data, these new motion tracking data, and also to generate a pipeline for um, for talent that teams might hire. Just in general, how, how should we think about what you're doing you know, we talk to teams and, you know, they're competing with one another and they want an edge on these things. And some teams are investing heavily in analytics and they're hoping that's an advantage over teams that aren't investing heavily in analytics. What does the ro- the league think of, how does the league think of its role in analytics? Are they trying to push this onto teams? Are they trying to promote? In what sense does this serve the league? Well, I think part of the reason I was I was hired in the first place is because the league looked at what teams were doing and, and sort of uh, assessed that if, if our teams were going to be beefing up, then, then maybe they should be too. Uh, and, and most of the sort of advanced stuff that I would be doing would certainly be on the on the the rules side of things. So, what can we? How can we use player tracking data to to better learn about the game, uh, and and not just player tracking data, but also some of the play by play data. And, and so, I think realistically, there there's a lot of what I'm doing that is just a league level basis and not really caring about teams winning. And you know, quite honestly, I want healthy quarterbacks. I want competitive games. Mm-hmm. I want. Uh, uh, well officiated plays and those types of things, and if if, if the state of the game is good, uh, then then that sort of is, is a good spot for the league to be in. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of other league data that that we could have in terms of you know business data or Instagram mentions or Pizza Hut commercials, and, and the league has some of that data too. I'm much more on the field, and, and what is, what does that product tell us about the game? Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, is is there kind of a corresponding sort of chief analytics position in the other professional sports or is this kind of a unique thing that just happened your position is uh, in part a product of like kind of you know the the nfl perhaps like then the team's not being as analytics savvy as say a typical baseball organization and then all of a sudden this next gen uh, data comes in and hits them is is that kind of those that substrate is that kind of unique to the NFL as far as your position's concerned or would there be value to something like this in ba- basketball baseball etc I certainly think there's value for all the leagues to have uh, as many of these folks as, as possible um I, I will also, I, the NBA was really helpful as I got started uh, I I've, I've reached out to a couple of folks that are in similar roles in the NBA um whether it was about their hackathon and their experience or some of the, the the ways that they're taking to analyze their game or their officials and things like that. So I, I can, I'm certainly happy to, to give them a little bit of credit too. And, and I know they've had some folks for a couple of years now that have been doing some really good work. I can't speak as much to MLB and NHL or MLS, but I think it, it's certainly a position that leagues uh, would, you know, what typically when a league is going to make a rule change, there, there's sort of a lot of expert coach opinions. And in this case, you know, we're able to provide sort of some supplementary data that, that can help drive those conversations. Mm-hmm. To the outsider, it looks like you've done a phenomenal job, especially through the Big Data Bowl. But but, but the combination of the next-gen stats, motion tracking, and the Big Data Bowl has spawned so much activity and so much interest. And, and there are, you know, you're never going to compete with the sabermetrics community in baseball, but it's almost at that level in terms of frenzy and interest and use from people that are you know, one layer outside the NFL. And I'm not sure if that's intended or not, but it's, to an outsider, it seems to me that you and the league are advancing analytics in the league almost indirectly by, by gen- generating all this activity outside of the league. The, the dialogue, the interest, the, the, the pipeline you say, people working on these things. And it's, I, I don't think teams are immune, even though they're, they'd like to be. And, you know, they, they're, they're pretty robust against it. I don't think they're immune to the conversation that's happening around them among media, commentators, 
fans, the analysts, even the casual analysts. And I, I suspect that because of what you're doing, you're, you're going to actually generate more interest inside the buildings as well. Does, does that dynamic sound right to you? Yeah, and we're certainly hoping to play a small role. I mean, my the anecdote that I have is I, I was a when I was in college, I played football. I was an offensive lineman. And the reality is, is I went to do a senior thesis in statistics, and there was no football data. So I had to do a senior thesis in baseball data. And I think that, that always sort of stuck with me as, like, I would have loved to have been able to analyze any football data. And, and so, you know, for me now to, to sort of get to this point and say, like, all right, there are other current Mike Lopez's that are an undergraduate, and, and they would like to be able to answer these questions. And, and for a while, they couldn't. And that was just the reality of where football data was. And, and I think that we're able to, to play a small role in, in advancing the field. And, and we're not alone. I mean, the, the, you know, Ron and, and, and Maxime, who did the NFL scraper package, have done a, a lot of the same things, which is if you, you know, and the, 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 if you build it, they will come. This is, you know, if you release the mm-hmm. data, they will start to analyze it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're starting to see some of that with, uh, with football tracking data. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, this is Eric Browder. Just one quick question. Is there anything that someone needs to know, really, about the NFL? Like, let's imagine I'm an expert in prediction. I know how to build complicated, sophisticated machine learning algorithms that have good out-of-sample predictive power. Can someone just dive in? This is more of a question of jobs. Can someone that's just good at statistics ju- jump in and all of a sudden become a good prediction person for the NFL? I think if they have the right folks that, that have the football-centric knowledge to, to give them advice on what to do, for sure. I mean, realistically, you know, I don't know who's going to win our contest, but the, the folks that I, I hope are, are scoring well are the ones who have football-specific expertise and also statistics expertise. And you know, those, you know, that Venn diagram doesn't generally have a huge overlap, so potentially by working together, and if you're a, a football person, you're pairing with a data person, or vice versa. If you're a data person, you're pairing with a football person. You can start to, to sort of merge talents and come up with, you know, what are the best features for this model? How can we continue to derive new ways of improving this model? And I think a lot of, you know, our hope is that it's, it takes a lot of football-centric features to do well here. It's not just about having the best and fanciest model that have down distance and acceleration, for example. Well, that's going to be interesting, really interesting to see. It'd be interesting to know that of the teams that do really well, where and how they pulled in their football knowledge or football expertise beyond just the statistical stuff. Terrifically, yep. terrifically interesting. Listen, Michael, thank you for joining us. Always appreciate your taking time out and love the work you're doing. We follow it. We promote it. We wish you the best with it. All right. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Michael Lopez, Director of Data and Analytics at the NFL. He is a stats profit Skidmore. He was in that role full-time before the NFL poached him about a year and a half ago to get this position up and on the way. And he is the force behind the Big Data Bowl. NFL's in its year two of its data competition called the Big Data Bowl. Michael Lopez. All right, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, though we just lost Audie Weiner. Eric Bradlow is still here. Shane Jensen is still here. You guys can be here. Give us a shout, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or give us an email, businessradio at com, or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. Great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics, and we're always up for your questions and observations there. Just off the phone with Michael Lopez, Director of Data and Analytics at the NFL, 
talking a lot about his big data bowl competition, but more generally about the enterprise advancing analytics in the world of of American football. We're going to change to a different kind of football now. Kyle Martino is joining us. Kyle is the Premier League studio analyst for NBC Sports Group. He joined NBC in 2012. He covered the 2012 London Olympic Games for those guys. He covered the 2016 Rio Olympic Games for those guys. He played in the MLS and he played for the U.S. men's national team. Delighted to have Kyle join us. Good morning, Kyle, and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I just walked my son to school in uh, in Connecticut, and now I am walking down to get a gigantic uh, cup of coffee. <laughs> All right. That's the, those are the real-time updates we need right there. Where are you in Connecticut, exactly. Kyle? Uh, in uh, Westport. Okay. So now I ended up in the town that uh, that I grew up in, the Tough Streets, Westport, Connecticut. Oh, uh, that's After, Westport. Uh, that's twelve years as a nomad traveling around. That's wonderful. That's a great place to land. Beautiful town there on the shore, Long Island, Long Island Sound. Um, I'm very partial to the Connecticut shore. Spent a few years up there myself. That's wonderful. Kyle, uh, uh-huh. we we want to hear about your your work um, on soccer. We want to hear about your take on the state of soccer analytics. But let's first hear a little bit about how you got into the position you're in. You're the you're the premier commentator for really the premier U.S. coverage of soccer. And how does one land in that position? We've 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 heard you referred to as the Kirk Herbstreet of soccer, which is a big compliment for us football guys. So curious how you came about your position. Yeah, yeah. Like anyone finds um, their their way to a to a. Um, to, to a successful and, and sought after role uh, by, by a bit of luck. Um, you know, it's kind of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, long, plenty of those as a player. And, um, you know, in the, in the aftermath of my playing career, I had a career ending injury at 28 being on TV and talking about the game was never the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ostensibly I was out for a sort of sports business career after soccer um, and realized very quickly that, um, you know, I missed the game. I missed being around it and tried to avoid it because my career was ended short and, and a dream I was able to achieve was taken away from me. And uh, being being that distance away from the game where you're, you're at the stadium, you're in the studio, you're around it, but it's, but it's the periphery where you get to just see it through the lens of a fan again mm-hmm. uh, just gave me a buzz and a love uh, for the game again. And I was just fortunate that one day I was in New York City and uh, the analyst, for ESPN to cover LA Galaxy versus Red Bulls got sick last minute. Oh my! Um, they knew I was in the area. They said that Kyle guy talks a bunch. Can we uh, see if we can actually do it on television? <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. Wow, that's amazing. Well, um, you, you, it's a, it's a, there's a break there at the end, but there was, I'm sure, a lot that went into being in the position to capitalize on that break. But that's a that's a terrific story. Okay, you've been doing it since then. How would you say the soccer landscape, the U.S. in particular, the U.S. media fan soccer landscape, even the professional soccer landscape, has changed in the period of time you've been covering it as a as a as a media member? Oh, I mean, dramatically. Um, you know, to kind of go back a little bit further. You know, I grew up and fell in love with this game, uh, struggling to, to find it on TV. You know, sitting on the uh, on the family room rug in the morning, too close to the TV, while all my other brothers got ready for church, or you know, my parents tried to herd us all together to take us to do some Sunday activities. That you know, I was watching the game, but it was uh, Syria or Liga MX, uh, many times in different languages, and so. Mm-hmm. You know, to think that young kids are sitting there and enjoying 
multiple professional leagues, including uh, a few tiers of, of domestic leagues and college soccer, all of that on, um, you know, not only not only on TV, but on multiple devices. I don't think anyone would have expected when I started this, people would be sitting uh, on the uh, Metro North on their way into the city watching uh, watching the Premier League on their way to a bar. Right, right. Fair, fair enough. What what is your sense of the popularity of the Premier League now in the states? I mean, I, I get so warped because I have some friends who are diehards, and so I, I but I don't have a good sense of the, how. To what extent is the U.S. paying attention to the fact that Liverpool, you know, hadn't 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 not won a game until this week? Yeah, so I, I think um, you know honestly, I think a pivotal moment, um, you know the. The statistics behind the coverage and the excitement, not only of soccer, but but especially the Premier League and how we've grown an audience year after year. You know, I, I think the first season it started um, with a really smart marketing campaign from the NBC team, almost like if you go back to the old Apple campaigns of trying to make technology safe, accessible and sexy and, and getting people to, <laughs> you know, to, to look at a computer in a different way. You know, we, we, we assuaged concerns of the of the average fan that this is a sort of elite niche uh, cult group that goes to follow football. You know, American uh, um, or, uh, you know, the Americans call soccer. We, we, we thought it wasn't ours. It was imported. And so our pick a team campaign that essentially was mm-hmm. like kind of a dating profile of linking mm-hmm. someone with a club based on their predisposition to love a sports team because of certain idiosyncrasies. You know, that, that was a really smart push, and I think the evolution of the, the, the fan base growing across different demographics is two things. One is uh, we're up against very little at that hour in the morning. It's also the last bastion of families getting together to sit and enjoy something uh, for, for more than two minutes together. And, um, and also there, there's such a wide range of an incredibly intelligent soccer fan, whether expat or American with a high soccer IQ, but, but also – the, the, the fan that just joined recently that, that has no insecurity about celebrating Liverpool or Fulham having never been to Craven Cottage or Anfield <laughs> and, and truly embracing it in right. the bars and singing the songs. And I think Leicester Football Club, one of the greatest sports stories of all time, right. 5,000 to 1 odds to win, go and win, that, that transcended the soccer bubble and told an incredibly compelling soccer story that I think uh, made a lot of sports fans in our country catch the bug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, talk a little bit about what's going on with the Premier League this year. So you're, you know, early, relatively early in the season, but it's t- starting to take shape. And of course, Man City came in about as big a favorite this year as it was last year, which is some of the most dominant preseason forecasts we've ever seen in any sports. They barely, barely got it done last year, and they're trailing Liverpool this year. And of course, the, the the league goes deeper than that. Leicester's having a good season as well. But what's your sense on how things are shaping up so far? Um, you know, Liverpool are looking the favorites, uh, but they were looking the favorites through this point last year, um, and we know how that turned out. You know, I, the the beauty the beauty of the Premier League is, you know, when you get to Christmas, you can make predictions, expectations, but uh, there's just an incredible sporting meritocracy of the Premier League where, you know, parity exists. Uh, you know, where where teams in last place, and we saw this with Watford drawing with Spurs the other day. You know, the, the, the upsets come fast and, and regularly. It's, it's not like some of the leagues in the world where there's two powerhouses that battle each other every year. Now, Liverpool and Manchester City are the powerhouses of the Premier League, and I think 
we, we, we haven't seen two clubs that far away from the rest in, in some time. But, you know, that, that's why fans are so excited about it because, you know, the, the promotion relegation format, and, I, and I'll sort of give you a, an analogy. If you took the slowest three racers out of a marathon every hour, the average time increases. And so, you know, the, the, the uh, punishment for, for not being good enough for mediocrity of relegation creates almost two titles. You know, there's the survival title and there's the winning the league title. And I'll tell you, towards the end of the year, sometimes watching the survival title is, is more compelling. <laughs> right. So, you know, you, you hear arguments every single year about bringing this format to the U.S. And I, I think it would be incredible. It would be refreshing as a sports community not to, to celebrate last place for the first round draft pick. But, the, the, you know, the other thing is um, it, it, it every single season uh, gives, you know, the Liverpools, the Manchester cities and 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 uh these teams battling for title it gives them new challenges to face these clubs with huge um ambition and expectation to have the mighty clubs come to their tiny you know little stadium and i'll, I'll give you a personal experience um i'm in the ownership group for real mallorca in spain with uh steve nash du holden and robert sarver and 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 an ownership group now i own a tiny little stake but we were in the third division 18 months ago we climbed the tables and we just beat Real Madrid in, oh, in wow. our first loss at our home stadium. And so, like, that, that kind of thing is one of the reasons that fans wake up every weekend and, and celebrate, celebrate even in the absolute failure of your club being relegated or tiny, just because that tiny little kernel of hope that you beat the mighty ones one day is just a really cool thing. So, Kyle, this is Eric Bradlow. One of the things I've always found, uh, I have three sons that are all diehard uh, English Premier League and soccer fans. Who's their team? It's a good question. I would say probably Man City in the English Premier League is their front team. Runners, front yeah, runners. Yeah, they're, they're front runners, but they, they get a lot of TV time too. Um, the question I was going to ask you was, do you ever see a time where there are playoffs that will happen? Because one of the things we always talk about is, you know, that it brings up, you think about the, the World Cup where, you know, there's the knockout round and all of a sudden teams are out. And so there's this abruptness. Do you, or do you see it staying the way it is where it's just kind of a, overall end of the season who's got the most points how, how do you see that going yeah that's a really good question um you know i think the, the march madness is kind of the, the the perfect example of what that format can right. do to to a, to a you know to a sporting competition and the drama creates and cinderella stories and dick vitale going nuts i mean we, we we as americans growing up with that format totally understand why it's compelling they have it in Europe. You know, go back to, to um, Mallorca. We had to go through playoff formats to get into the next division. So, uh, you know, they have FA Cups. Cup competitions are kind of that knockout thing. One of the reasons that I think it won't happen in first division leagues for a while, um, if ever, is, you know, the, the, the idea that you can be just good enough during the regular season and then it's anyone's game it means that that every game doesn't matter. And so, the, the you know, the cool part about the format is every single game is vital. And someone would make a counter-argument that those teams in the middle of the pack that are safe from relegation and can't go right, win the title right, right. kind of just kind of just linger and hang around. And, and, and that's a really, you know, that's a really good argument. But I just think you have the best of both worlds with cup competitions happening simultaneously during your season you can be knocked out of. And then the regular season is every game matters. Whoever's top of the table at the end is the best. It wasn't a bad call. It wasn't a bad bounce. Like, here it is. This is the champion. 
So, Kyle, one more general question before we drop into some of the analytics-specific questions. I, 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 like, I think it's possible. I'm a huge college football fan. I think it's possible that the, that the best highlights from any sport come from soccer. That if you just wanted to, just for the thrill of the highlight, it's possible that soccer would be the best place to go. And, um, and I, take, I take some flack from family members and others about that. But based on that, based on that if you were going to point people who may be a casual soccer fan or maybe wanna, they want to sample a little bit, my impression is that NBC Sports does a nice job of, of providing highlights and kind of condensed versions of soccer as kind of a starter, as kind of a gateway um, to, to soccer appreciation. What would you suggest to them? Yeah, um, that, that's you know that's a good point, and I think for those that have predispositions of you know low scoring game and 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 lulls, you know uh, you, you you can throw out statistics like you know the balls in play for around nine minutes during an NFL game or around uh, ten minutes for uh, an MLP. Game. I mean, the, all of that's irrelevant because people love what they love, and everyone kind of gets in their echo chamber and sits and enjoys what you know what they're used to. I think highlights are a great way to show people um, some of the incredible skill and balletic nature of the game. But for me, like a goal, the reason that a, that a 0-0 game or 1-0 game could be one of the best games you've ever watched is a goal is like a guitar solo in a credible song. You know, you don't just listen to a guitar solo <laughs> or, a, or a crescendo. You know, you, you, you listen to the buildup. And so this isn't a like you know it's a, a snob comment about you have to understand i'm feeling this. bad i'm feeling bad about myself kyle right now no no <laughs> you don't you don't have that's the thing and that's the mistake is any 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 comment about you have to understand soccer and someone that, that thinks it's boring doesn't understand it i i just i think is a, is an obtuse and 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 obviously not cogent argument for enjoying it i mean really the answer is you don't have to understand it you don't have to know it just go go be in the atmosphere of people that are watching it, and, and just through osmosis, you'll get what it means, and and it means something different to each individual. And highlights are a great way to just kind of tease people into seeing the beauty of the game. I, I love that, but I but but I, I I agree with that. But I love your recommendation. This is a better recommendation. Your recommendation is go watch the game with people who are watching the game and appreciate the game because you'll you'll feel the vibe even during those non highlight moments. And that sounds like a terrific idea. By the way, while we're on that point, you guys are going down to Austin this weekend for this morning's live fan festival. There's a new thing. The Premier League is doing, you guys at NBC Sports and the Premier League are going to Austin for a morning's live fan festival this Saturday morning, 7 a.m. Eastern. That's 6 o'clock in in Austin, by the way. Y'all are doing this thing. That's exciting. So a little bit of a promotion, but also what is that and why are you doing that on Saturday in college football country, no less? Well, you, you could think of it um, as a promotion. We look at it as a celebration. And, you know, college game day and these other kind of uh, on-site uh, fan appreciation experiences are really about, you know, we do it from the studio every weekend and are lucky to have the job we have. We're lucky to be in as many living rooms as, as we are in the morning. But, you know, the people that wake us wake up and send us pictures of their dogs and jerseys or them sitting there with their baby and a full kit and, you know, drinking coffee or something else in the morning. You know, it's just a great opportunity to thank those fans and, and you know, get to after we go off their screen and the game comes on, turn around and, and, and face the screen like they do with them mm-hmm. and celebrate an incredible league, uh, the beautiful game. And, and, you know, you don't have to make an argument for it being the most popular game in the world. It's just this incredible conduit that brings people together. So, it's really special for us 
you know, Rebecca and the Robbies to get an opportunity to share that experience with the fans that support us so much. We're talking to Kyle Martino. Kyle is the NBC studio analyst for their Premier League show. Kyle also played professional soccer um in the in mls us mls and he played for them in the 19 in the 1920s in the 1920s and the men's national team this is this is a this is a quite a career before jumping in in the the 2000s into the media piece uh your analogy from earlier where you described kind of a soccer game you you know the the highlight you know goal scoring in a one nothing game is as, as the epic guitar solo for those kind of games where there's the build up and you never get that guitar solo you know, it's it's a zero zero game or something like that. What should kind of casual fans be looking for in the game, kind of beyond sort of the goal scoring and stuff like that? Especially for those of us that are watching on TV, where you don't necessarily get to see the whole field of play. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and kind of that's the challenge of being an analyst is, um, and it's and it's a difficult challenge in our country because you're you're um, you're speaking to such a, a wide spectrum of viewer in terms of you don't want to condescend to uh, people with with a higher understanding of the game and, and having been in it or watched it for a long time. But you also want to help um, the casual fan to understand outside of the goal and the big moments what's interesting about a game. And I, I would say if I could pick two things, one is is matchups. You know, it, it's it's kind of like you know, American fans can appreciate, you know, the wide receiver, you know, Revis or, or, or Deion Sanders. You know, it's like, how, how, how do you neutralize the, the, the biggest wide receiver threat on the other team? You know, how, how, do you, how do you get to a quarterback that if you give him time hurts you? And so we try to highlight these little matchups, maybe in wide positions where Mo Salah is going against a really talented outside back and who's going to win that one. Um, that's something we like to point out. And, and, and the other thing, and, Sometimes it's tough because we have a tactical camera in the studio where we can see the whole field, and the fan really just gets a, a tiny window into where the ball and the, and the action is. Mm-hmm. We just try to point out tactical schemes. You know, what, what, what is the team trying to do to be a threat, or what threat are they trying to neutralize through a tactical formation that is about not only a week of preparation and watching video and setting up sessions and, and movement and practice, but typically, you know, years long if you think about Manchester City and how they specifically play and how Pep Guardiola decides to alter that even in the middle of the game by switching formations. So Kyle, this is Eric Bradlow again. I wanted to ask you, what do you see as being the advanced metrics that are going to come out in soccer? Because like, you know, we always say if you couldn't watch the game, but you could only look at a box score, you know, historically, obviously goal scored is a good one. Uh, Shots saved, shots taken. Um, you could look at time of possession. You could look at number of passes. Are there things that you see being worked on that the, if you like, the sabermetrics community will get excited about with soccer the way they've now fall? Obviously, baseball has a long history of it. Football's developing it. The NBA with motion tracking. What do you see as kind of the next wave of advanced stats? Not only that the stat types will be excited on, but that you may even talk about on the air. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good question. You know, um, you know, in terms of Moneyball or stats, whether it's in valuations of players in terms of acquisitions and markets, or in in putting out the right lineup to go against the right team based on analytics, you know, I, I think this part of the game and and football has has grown uh, more than any other sport. You know, our our game. Um, because of its fluidity and because of the huge sample size of information based on how long the ball's in play, it's hard to 
put a microscope like an RBI or or um, you know or or pass completion and and you know yards covered and catches like a lot of these things that are really helpful and 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 tell a huge story that you can trust the numbers on. Um, it's it's much more difficult because of the subjectivity of numbers. And I'll give you a few stats that are super interesting but hard to hard to really monetize and make decisions on. One is expected goals. So that, that's kind of this, this new stat that's, that's come out, not recently, but one we've tried to figure out because there's endless amount of data, and that's kind of the data world, right? It's not about capturing it. It's about what does it tell you. And so what people are trying to figure out is, um, you know, expected goals is one that suggests in a certain situation you should be scoring, but you have to obviously factor in who gets that situation because it's kind of like putts within 10 feet. That could be a hundred percent for, for, for one golfer. And that could be, you know, 5% for me. So um, that, that's the interesting part about analytics is it, it, it's a lens that it just kind of depends which player or team you're overlaying that analytics on. And so, you know, I, I'd really love to be able to to quantify expected goals because that tells a really good story of did this is this team unlucky or that were they just not clinical? Because you know, whether it's possession or whether it's shots or shots on target, I can hit a shot on target from midfield. Was I expected to score that goal? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a question we're always interested in from users of this, especially high-profile users like yourself. As an analyst, as a commentator, what would you like to see from the analytics community in soccer? How can they advance the conversation? What insights might they be able to offer? If you're not yet getting what you'd like, either because it's impossible or someone's just not working on it, what would you ask for? Yeah, well, you know, the one thing I'm always interested in is um, – is real-time performance analytics. So you'll notice that a lot of players in, in, um, in soccer, there's a little bump on the back of their jersey. Uh, they, they use these devices a lot in training and the uh, GPS trackers and, and, and other devices that basically tell you max speed, distance covered, um, heart rate, these other things. I, you know, sometimes I kind of want the diagnostics of a player to see, like, is he running out of steam? Mm-hmm. You know, it, like, ha, ha, is he is he no longer reaching his top speed or her top speed? You know, do, you know, does this player um, does this player have a lower resting heart rate than everyone else? You know, it's like some of these things for me in terms of these are high performance machines out there. Mm-hmm. I, I I just kind of love to know how these machines are performing. Because the, the data is being fed back to a, a team of physios and others that are saying, hey, this guy's you know redlining. Well, tell us a little bit about that. How is the information being used? You're saying the clubs themselves have the information real time during the game, and some of them are using it to make personnel decisions? Is that right? Like, like is, yeah, th- th- so- this is informing substitutions much more than potentially even like in-game strategy would. Or, yeah, or protecting players that are coming back from injury. Um, what you typically do as a professional athlete, and I can't speak for other sports. Um, they only pay me to play one. But, um, you know, you come in in preseason and do a lot of physical tests to, to get your baseline. And each individual athlete has a different baseline. So it used to be every team would train and everyone would run the same drills. And, every, and, and you know, when science and, and technology evolved, they realized that each individual, especially position by position, needs a different type of physical conditioning. So that, that baseline that's used, you check back in through the season to see where someone is in terms of, of you know, sometimes if they're with the club long enough, three, four, five-year track record on 
how they should be performing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times they'll use some of these analytics to see if someone's actually physically prepared to play a game or if they're an injury risk and, and you know, figure things out that way. You know, the eye test ends up being kind of the last thing. There's still that kind of anachronistic way of seeing, you know, what's going on with an athlete. But the other, the other really interesting piece in soccer is not only the technology in terms of performance, but the, the, the big talking point is the technology in terms of helping referees not get criticized for every single situation. So I feel like VAR is, is something we talk about every single weekend. And maybe people are getting tired of it, but it's not going anywhere. So this is video replay, which was introduced only recently, right? This, and, and somewhat controversially. Well, in the Premier League, yeah, they, they, they're the last major league to, to, to um, implement it. And listen, I believe in, and we've had it in American sports for, for many years in different capacities, but I, I just believe in, as technology increases and we have phantom slow-mo replays and 30 cameras, if we're going to sit in bars or at home and criticize referees for missing a call that was so blatant, then we should give them the same view we had or right. we should, you know, we should move on. So, uh, you know, referees in real time, it, it's absolutely remarkable the percentage of accuracy they right. have in terms right. of in-game calls. People forget that, that the hardest call in the game is offside when you're watching three objects, an attacker running one way, a defender going the other, and a ball hit from 20, 30 yards away. <laughs> right. They're up to 92% accuracy there. Yeah. Um, you know, but Hawkeye and other technology could get it to 100%. Um, it's just the, re- the real problem with, with how VAR is being used in the Premier League that's creating such a stir is that they've set such a high bar in terms of overturning or or – or overturning in the sense of a mission or overturning an actual call on the field. And so what ends up happening, yeah, what ends up happening is um, they, they, they put the bar so high that it's impossible for them to reverse things that they should reverse. But the other thing is um, they're, they're including it in subjective calls, which is essentially re-refereeing. So, right. Yeah, we didn't need technology for the, was that really a foul or wasn't it? We needed technology for, was that just a ridiculous dive and there was absolutely no contact? Was the guy 10 yards offside? You know, was, was it such a blatant handball that 20 people in the bar would agree on it? And so they're, they're using VAR in senses where they re-referee the call, and, and that's just not how it was, was intended to be used. Mm-hmm. And it'll take time for them to get it right. It's, it's a relatively new system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kyle, you've talked about analytics in a couple of senses, the, in particular with player evaluation uh, and you know, player evaluation plays such an important role in professional soccer, especially in Europe. But then also the sports science side of things, the high performance side, the physiological side of things. Another place where it seems like it has made some difference is kind of the in-game strategy arena and an appreciation for maybe some parts of the game are more important than we appreciated. Maybe set pieces deserve more attention and prep that kind of, is that, is that a, that's my sense from the outside is, is what have you seen an increased appreciation for within the game that may have, it may, who knows exactly where it may came from, or maybe it came from analytics, but what is appreciated now? And you see it as a commentator more so than when you were a player. Um, I, I, I think, um, there, there is a real sense of, and, and this is pretty simple, of trusting the data in terms of it used to be a halftime talk was, was a coach coming in with their, his assistants, writing up on the, on the dry erase board and saying, we need to do this, we need to push up, we need to drop off, we need to you know, play a more narrow, we need to play higher. And, and now 
if you think about it, when you watch a game from field level, it's two-dimensional. So it's amazing that we ever thought we could have the ability to understand spatial awareness and, 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 and tactical um, frailties or, or strengths when we can't actually really see the game as, as it's evolving and as the players um, are experiencing it. So they, some coaches used to put someone up in the stands and then they'd have a conversation at halftime. Now they, in live time, have tablets on their lap. And what they're doing is they're clipping off video and sending it to an analytics team that, um, and I've sat next to these guys when I've watched a game, that are grabbing it, scraping it for information, um, turning it into a halftime recommendation and mm. even a halftime kind of reel to help everyone understand in, in video context what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it does inform, it does inform second half decisions. And mm-hmm. so that, that's, that's very new because a coach is being asked to, tr- to trust something that they might not be seeing or, or feeling. And that, that's a big leap for someone that, that typically has operated on intuition so much. Well, that's a battle that we're accustomed across a, a, many different sports, and you're reporting that there's being progress made on that, that, that for some reason, that, and I'm curious what reasons you think are behind it, coaches are being amenable well, to that. They are changing the way they're doing yeah. halftime because of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think um, it, it's a natural paradigm shift in the progression of it, it, it living in your life in, in more ways. Listen, I can pick up my phone and it'll tell me how often I've picked it up today. Um, the, you know, I'm not going to say, no, even though it says I've, I've picked it up two more hours than I did yesterday, I'm actually, I actually picked it up less than I did yesterday. It might, it might feel that way, mm-hmm. but you know, there's reinforcement in our daily life that this information is available, and whether you choose to use it or not, you know, it, it's, it's truly up to you. I, I think a great manager is one that understands um, how to how to how like the calculus of um, information actually can 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 lead you in a direction that it really wasn't suggesting. So it's it's, it's kind of one part in an analytics team being really clear about what they're looking for and how the information helps, and it's another part of okay. So it says that our striker has only been receiving the ball on the left side um, and and with 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 their back to the goal. How do we change that is a totally different thing that analytics can't can't really support. You just know you have a problem. Right, right. Listen, terrifically interesting, very, very insightful for us, Kyle. And we appreciate your being here to push us along in our understanding of soccer and to promote a little bit to the world soccer. Really appreciate what you're doing with NBC and the Premier League. We wish you the best with that work. We wish you the best with Austin this weekend. That sounds like a lot of fun. And yeah, thank you again thank for you. taking the time to be with us. All right, thanks for having me, guys. Kyle Martino, he is the Premier League studio analyst for NBC Sports Group's Premier League coverage. He's been there since the early 2000s and before that played both in MLS and for the U.S. men's national team. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have... Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Dion Simpkins back in the sound engineer seat. Dion Simpkins, associate producer here, rocking his patented Dion Simpkins orange Beats by Dre. We got our Radio Shacks on in here. I don't know why we don't have proper headphones. Friggin' Dion coming here flaunting his beats, orange beats no less. Love having Dion around. Love making him work for a living as opposed to sitting around. 
Hitting the bonbons. No bonbons this morning, Dion. No bonbons. No bonbons. All right. We're just off the phone with with uh, Kyle Martino talking soccer. That was fun, guys. I, feel, I mean, every yeah. time I talk to these soccer guys, I get more excited about the the um, the event in Austin. I'm, I, you know, I'm partial to Austin, of course, but that's just a neat idea. Let's go down there and do a fan appreciation thing because people do get. There are people out there who get really fired up on Saturday mornings to watch their. Yeah, Premier League soccer, and then they can try and I mean it's a marathon, not a sprint. They can try and power through to the game, uh, Texas know, game go. after that. If you're if you're impatient for college game day, that's you right. Know, you're, you, don't, you need, you need something to get the else tailgate to do. Started early, yeah. like six a.m. or so. I mean, let's just get it going a couple yeah. hours ahead of time. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the challenges actually soccer faces now, and Kyle was talking about this, but in an indirect way, is that there are actually so many leagues. So you know, in some sense, there's one NFL, there's one MLB. There's one NBA. But for soccer, I mean, there's all kinds of different leagues. There's international competitions that are going mm-hmm. on. So I'm just wondering at some level if part of the lack of connection that people are having is is that in some sense trying to sort out all these different teams and leagues and everything else. There's, there's, there's obviously MLS. There's English Premier League. But there's all other leagues going on. There's different levels of competition yeah. going on at every time. And so... I, I'm just wondering, in some sense, it's, is it harder because there could be four or five major leagues going on at once, different levels of competition, et cetera? Agreed. However, there is a top league. There's a most followed there a league. There's league. a highest yeah. valued league, and it happens to be the league these guys. I mean, it didn't happen to be. They've chosen to promote this in their in their in their, by covering it, the Premier League. So I, I 100% agree with you. And it's kind of complicated as well. So, for example, right, Champions League has started this week. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it's how these things all intertwine together, that there's kind of playoffs from the previous year it's, it's really going crazy. on at the same time as the current year. So just let's be real precise about this for any listeners who don't know. So the Premier League's going along. Last year's top four teams in the Premier League advanced to this year's Champions League, where they play the top four or the top two from the other European leagues. But they do it concurrently. So yeah, they're playing correct. the 2019-2020 season. They're playing the regular Premier League season, mostly on weekends. And then in the middle of the week, they're going around and, and yeah. playing their Champions League, and they'll and, they're, and they will advance in this tournament for the next. And there's few also, months. I think, I think at some point during the next few weeks, or maybe it's already happening. There's qualifying for the next like European Championship or the next World Cup or whatever. I mean, it's it's it's, 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 it's hard to keep track of. Well, if you're a soccer fan, it means there's lots of interesting yeah, things. Going that's on. right. Um, we've, we've got a lot of football to talk to, but before we do that, we've got a few odds and ends to pick up. I know Eric has something on the NBA. Yeah, I just found there was an interesting discussion that I don't know if you saw what happened yesterday, but they had an interview with Michael Jordan, and two things that were interesting about it. First, they asked him if they, if they he thought that Steph Curry was a Hall of Famer, and his response was not yet. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting, but it's correlated with he – so he – at, was asked to choose, like he always is asked, like who's you know pick your if you could pick a top five team to play, who would you pick? Like I mean, who would be on his team? Obviously, Michael yeah. Jordan's going to pick himself. The reason I thought it was interesting of who he picked, it's probably the worst analytics team that you'll ever see. And here's why. So Let me r- say, r- r- the question was of all time. Of all time, he could Good pick Lord. any five players. Let me just tell you who he picked. Yeah, let's hear. This. So he picked himself. Now, would you agree that Michael Jordan was not a great three point shooter? I don't care. I'm taking my All right, control. but let me just finish. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that was <laughs> no, not, that was no, not no, what he's known you'll for. See, no, no, but you'll see my point. Nobody That's not what he's hit known threes for. back then. Nobody not, shot nobody threes. Sh- uh, Larry Bird hit a few, but let me just continue. A few. Scottie Pippen, great player, but not a shooter. Hakeem Olajuwon, one of the great players of all time, not a shooter. James Worthy. Shooter, corner. 
not a three-point shooter, and Magic Johnson. The only reason I was I was intrigued by this team, I'm pretty sure advanced statistics yeah. would not pick this because no, three is worth more than five. two. There's no, 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 they choose that no five. but I was just interested yeah. in it because if you think about it from an analytics perspective, there is no, like, I'm going to pick a three-point shooter on yeah. here. I'm gonna, I mean, it just, it seemed to me to Come be... Come on, Eric, are you surprised, no, and, and, that, and, and, are you surprised that Michael Jordan wasn't analytics-y in his answer to Well, you? I, I think it's also, I mean, like, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, it's, it has demonstrated a lot of success as, as a player, as a team builder. <laughs> Maybe less so. Maybe less so. As a businessman, phenomenal you know, John success. Elway, great at playing quarterback. Uh, that's fine. That's true. Not so great at picking quarterbacks. Jordan has done phenomenal as a business person. Absolutely phenomenal. And he mm -hmm. is, for especially our generation, no one in our generation accepts any answer but that Michael Jordan was the best of all time. And as a competitor, we haven't seen anybody who who, who, who competes like that. And that I guess a I'm not in your team. generation by this by wow, metric. really? Yeah, it's LeBron. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is that is that tells you what generation you're in right there. If your answer is Jordan, you're a little bit older. If your answer is LeBron, you're both wrong and a little bit younger. That's interesting. I am I a little bit younger and I am often <laughs> wrong. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> all right. College football is something we haven't talked about yet. Are you guys paying any attention at all? Is there anything yeah. interesting in your No, eyes? I mean, I caught I caught the Texas-Oklahoma game. We don't have to <sighs> talk about it necessarily. I've drugged but. my friends through more painful Texas experiences. I'm sorry. Well, it's not I've as had... painful for me, so you can feel better about that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, I was just— I was cheering for them, though. Uh, for some—I don't know. It's not an unknown reason. They've got some some quality teams. I'm really interested in the Big Ten this year. Now, I also happen to be married to a Penn Stater, so that's not make it surprising. And her parents went to Ohio State, so that's, you know, it's not entirely— Very, very Big Ten. Very, yeah. And she grew up— in, uh, in Ohio, but either way, obviously Wisconsin's loss was, you know, I don't want to say a disruptive kind of thing, but, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, they're not, I mean, I guess they could run the table and maybe somebody would decide that they should be in the college football playoffs. I don't know. Oh, but, they could. I mean, heck, they, if they were running the table, they were going to beat Ohio State at least once and possibly twice, and that would be impressive. Mm -hmm. I mean, no. big, that's one of the only big games this weekend, actually, is Wisconsin-Ohio State. Yeah, so all I was saying is the Big Ten seems to interest me a bit this year, and um, I'm just interested well, in who's going to emerge your, from it. Your, your family team there is, is doing well. Penn State is undefeated, and they, they've looked good, and they're right. They're not top tier according to the advanced or the polls, but they're in that second tier right behind. And, you know, they're going to be a contender. They're, they're in the same division as Ohio State, and Ohio State looks amazing so far. So is this, I assume this is not, I mean, I assume Massey Peabody would agree with this too. This is not one of those years where a non-Power 5 team who is undefeated, because I'll make it up, Wisconsin ends up with one loss, Penn State ends up, there's just no chance, no. That, I don't know, Boise State or whoever it is, no. there's no chance. No chance. Well, let's start with just what's going on at the top of the of, of the of the of the power five, because we started the season, you know, everyone came into the season saying this is Alabama Clemson. This is kind of mm -hmm. boring. We've had chalky seasons, especially last year. This is going to be chalky again. We, Massey Peabody had Alabama five points ahead of Clemson. So even the polls had a number one. Season. Start of the season, we had Alabama head and shoulders. Now there are five teams within four points of Alabama. So there is nobody within five. Now we have five within four, five teams all grouped up there. Five teams, all looking very impressive in their own right, which makes it such a more interesting season than we've had in a long time. So Alabama, we still have at the top. You have to adjust for Tua Absolutely. being knocked out, and we don't we haven't we don't have a Tua adjustment in here right now. He's going to be out for at least a few weeks. We're it's really important in the whole playoff 
consideration. Ohio State has just looked unbelievable, unstoppable on both sides of the ball. LSU, most impressive offense anybody's seen in a while. Clemson, Clemson's still Clemson. They haven't been that great the first half of the season, but that's only because of our expectations being so high. And in Oklahoma, the story in Oklahoma is they've always got the first or best, first or second best offense in the in the in, in in college, but now they have a legitimate defense. We looked at some stats in this past week. They hired a new defensive coordinator over the offseason. They had Mike Stoops for years, Bob Stoops' brother. And Lincoln Riley kept him around for about half a season and then said, yeah, we need to change here. And every year for years, we'd, we'd, we'd expect their offense to be you know good, top 20, top 30, and they would drift down. Our, I mean, our, defense. our defense. assessment of defense yeah. would just drift down throughout the season. This year, <clears throat> we come in with the same kind of expectations, and it's been drifting up. It's a distinctly different pattern. It's clearly a coordinator effect. And Grinch, right now we have their defense the 13th best in the country. So you're matching. Which is still, I mean, I still will just point out, is is the weakest of either offense or defense among those top teams, right? That, that It's still kind of, you know, the weakest, the weakest point unit. of any of those teams. That's right. The weakest unit of any of those teams. That That, that is right. In it's fact, just not as weak as Oklahoma typically is. No, because last year, at the end of the year, they had the best offense on like the 70th best yeah. defense. It yeah. was absurd. But now this defense can keep them in games. And when you've got an offense and an offensive mind like Lincoln Riley. So Oklahoma's the more one of the to bring it back, Oklahoma is a more legitimate contender than they have been in the past, even though they've been a playoff team in the past. LSU people thought might give Alabama a run the last couple of years. They haven't. This year it seems more convincing well, that they're going to. Let me play out a scenario for you. I don't know if because you at Massey Peabody not only try to forecast games but also what the committee is going to do. What does the committee do? Alabama plays LSU in a few weeks. Let's imagine Tua does not play because he's still injured. Right. Very possible. Let's imagine LSU, whatever, routes them. 10, 14, 17-point win. But that's not the real Alabama. You're right. Then Tua comes back, and they win something. Does the committee say, well, that wasn't the real Alabama on the field. Therefore, we're essentially not even going to really count that loss. Alabama's in. <laughs> This is this is kind of the nightmare scenario, and that's for why you committee. know I'm hoping for it. Yeah, you always like you always like chaos, and that would be one of the chaotic moments. It's gonna how chaotic depends on what the other te- what the viable set of teams looks like, but they have in their charter in the committee's charter to consider injuries to teams. So they say among relatively comparable teams, we're going to distinguish them by their conference championships, by their head to head, by their common opponents and by injuries. And that's pretty remarkable. It gives them flexibility to say, look, this team was great. They've lost this great player. We don't think they're as good now. We're going to exclude them. Or the opposite, which is you're suggesting, they lost this game, but the best quarterback in college football, the best team, maybe the best player in college football, wasn't there, and now we want to bump them back up. What's true, I think one of the main stories about the committee in the five years that we've seen them is that they are, more so than we expected, about choosing the best four teams. Not the most deserving, not you know, not the ones who have the accolades of winning conference championships. They, to a surprising extent, are about choosing the four best, and that is one way they might do it. So a one-loss, in your mind, a one-loss Alabama team, if that's the loss and he doesn't play in that game, they could get picked over an undefeated team that the committee believes is a better team. I, I think it's possible, but I think it's unlikely that there'd be an undefeated Power 5 conference champion team that they would be so sure that Alabama was better than. Okay. But a one, that's essentially my question. Yeah, but but they could they could lose their division and there could be a say a one loss Oklahoma out of the Big 12 that they would choose. Oh, well, let me let me actually over. go take my worst case scenario. Let's imagine Alabama loses to LSU 
and they don't even therefore make the SEC championship. They, right, they exactly. would not. Yeah. So you're saying a they they didn't even make the championship. Forget losing it. They didn't even make it. Yeah. And they get picked. But that 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 has happened. I know before. it has There's happened. There's a precedent. Before. They they got picked they did over that. like a two loss Ohio State. Big Ten champion. They got chosen mm-hmm. over those. Of course, there's no controversy now because they went on to win the whole thing. And so there's good precedent for them doing that kind of thing. Now, choosing them over a one-loss Big Well, Power let's even say champion. this scenario. You know the scenario I'm hoping. All right, I'm going to lay out my dream scenario chaos right now. LSU beats Alabama. Georgia plays LSU in the championship game. Georgia beats LSU. <laughs> so now you've got Georgia sitting there. They've got one loss. They already they, lost. They, they go. They will go. They will go. LSU, who's beaten Alabama? No, they're not going. Yeah. Not, not if they lose to Georgia in the. I don't think. All right, so head but, to head. But, but Eric, it really depends. We can do those, but you got to always, if you're going to give me the scenario, you have to tell me what's going on in the Big Ten, what's going on with Clemson, what's going well, on let's with say Oklahoma. There's, let's say there's an undefeated Oklahoma. Let's say there's one undefeated team in the Big Ten. Clemson's undefeated. Those so two those, teams are in. Okay, so then they can only. T- so then LSU, sorry, Georgia beats LSU. Georgia's the only SEC team yeah, in. LSU's out. So. Alabama's yeah. out. I mean, I could give you the numbers. I'd have to dig them up, but, okay. but yeah, I'm going to go. All right, Georgia that's what I'm, I think I'm hoping clear. for. That chaos in the SEC. That's, that one's not chaotic. That one, I think, is that one's more. What you want chaos? You want some of these other teams to lose. You want some one-loss teams out there, so it's more controversial. You know, I mean, I mean, Oregon came back and beat Washington late, and Oregon has this one loss on their on their. On their schedule against a very decent Auburn team. If Auburn can, I mean, Auburn's always better than their record, which is kind of hurting Oregon right now. But with a little, you know, with some luck, with some other teams losing, Oregon might get back in the conversation. We don't think it's going to happen because these other teams are so good they're not likely to lose. But it really depends on what's happening with the set, what's happening with the whole set. And right now, the reason it's so, the reason the playoff race seems so clear is because those five teams are so good. Right now, we have the. Here to give the top five on making the playoff: Oklahoma eighty percent, Clemson seventy six percent, Ohio State seventy five percent, Alabama sixty six, and LSU fifty. And then there's a huge drop down to your 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 wife's ish, uh, team, the uh, Penn State. Penn State Georgia point one four, point one one. So big five clearly head and shoulders, and then a big drop down the others. So it's kind of playing out there: Alabama or LSU. So look, it's not going to be that clean, but right now it looks a little. Very interesting. It looks clean on the set, but then we God knows what's going to happen if all all four four of those five teams get in there. It's much more competitive than it has been. All right, we will talk about matchups in a second, but before we do that, any big picture comments on the NFL? Well, I was going to ask Shane this question. You had mentioned that you found the NBA less interesting the last few years because the um, you know the Warriors were essentially you know they're in the finals and you know yeah. maybe they're going to win, maybe they're not, etc. Are you finding the NFL less interesting this year? Because do you see any competition for the the uh, Patriots in the AFC? Like, can you just write them into the you know? Given Mahomes is injured, well, I, may... I mean, I don't think Mahomes is going to be injured come playoff time. So you think that there is still some yeah. uncertainty, no, even yeah, though you, you know, know now a... you do agree the Patriots are going to have I mean, home I, field. I, 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 I'll, I'll concede that the AFC is a little bit more kind of you know that the Patriots are definitely more favored over. I mean, I, I still see Kansas City and Baltimore. Um, as as competition there, Houston on a good day, um, Indianapolis, but perhaps Indianapolis too. Yeah, I mean Indianapolis, Houston. I can never figure out the AFC South to be completely honest with you. Um, but the NFC is more sort of. I, I think the the NFC is the more interesting conference right now in terms of having so many top teams. You know, San Francisco, Seattle, Green, Green Bay. Bay, Minnesota. I mean, the fact that I just listed four teams that are looking so good, Seattle. and only two of them right. can win a division. So, I mean, like, 
Good luck to the teams vying for the wild card in the NFC this year. Look, because the entire it's NFC be West, if tough. you count the Cardinals, they're at yeah. 500. They're 3-3-1, three, three and one, literally yeah. at 500. Every team in the NFC West is above 500. Yeah. At 500 or above. Yeah. It's a remarkable division this year. No, and it's going to make kind of that race for the wild card very competitive and very difficult. I mean, the, I, you know, I mean, I, I as kind of, I, I, I sort of, other than the Super Bowl a couple years ago, I generally try and cheer for the Eagles when I can. And they're in a really tough spot now, having already lost four games. I think they're almost like they're on the edge of like division or bust. Yeah, well, division or bust. Certainly division or bust. I don't know what to make of either them or the Cowboys. I mean, yeah. This is one of these things where we're six games in, seven games into the season, and it's just between the teams being relatively close together and the outcomes in NFL being so noisy. Yeah, we don't know what to make of those teams. We think they're both really good, but then one day they'll look, one week they'll look really bad. So those are. I thought that was a really interesting outcome because I don't think those teams are that different, and yet they look no, very the different. No, the last two on weeks where the Cowboys lost the Jets, and we saw what the Jets did against the Patriots, right. and then have but then having the Cowboys go in and just uh, obliterate the Eagles. It's no, yeah, it's, it's it is really, hard to say what's what's really kind of going on. It's really hard under to the understand. hood. So, with that setup, let's uh, take the final corner and come into the home stretch here. Moneyball matchups. All right, Eric Bradlow, what do you got? Well, Shane, why don't we start with you? Which game looks interesting to you on today's uh, slate? Well, it's not as marquee as it was supposed to be, but I still think the marquee matchups Green Bay against Kansas City. I think that's going to be an incredible game. Um, of course, without Mahomes in there, it may be a little bit less tantalizing as, as before. But um, and with Mahomes not in there, I think I do have to favor Green Bay in this one. Um, but but I'm just kind of interested to sort of see what um, I mean. A what what Kansas City's defense can do to stop and slow or slow down Rodgers. Are you at all surprised? I mean, at least this here is Packers minus five, and I assume the game is at Chiefs. That's right. So that means it's a big number on Mahomes. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm saying Huge. that's what I was going to ask Cade. Yeah. Isn't that? I mean, it's got to be if Mahomes was playing. Wouldn't the Chiefs be favored in this I game? Think so. I think Let's so say even they, they were favored by two or three. We're talking about over a touchdown yeah. move yeah. for one player. And by the way, in the Massey Peabody system, that would be considered not impossible, but extraordinary. No, right? I, you know the Is that best. High? Yeah, I think the best quarterbacks do get those kinds of numbers. I think okay. the markets do overreact to any given injury. But the the top quarterbacks I don't have in front of me, but we 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 are now est- we've we've always estimated we're getting better at estimating, even though it's yeah. really hard to do. Play quarterback effects, and the top ones do get those kinds of numbers. Um, and who did you uh, like in the game, Shane? You haven't said. I who- uh, Green Bay. I, I think I like Green Bay just because of this. Very. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would necessarily favor them away by five points. But I do like Green Bay in this game. All right, Kate. Any game catcher? The, the personal pleasure game is going to be um, New England hosting Cleveland. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just, I don't usually get to pull for the Pats, and I'm, I get to pull for them and watch them destroy the Browns, and that's going to make them, I think, two and five, which is such a delightful way for those guys to start the season. But more legitimately, I think the sneaky, interesting game here is Philadelphia Buffalo. Absolutely, Buffalo yeah. is something like five and one. It's a little bit surprising, and Philadelphia is surprisingly, you know, three and four. And um, we're going to find out which of those records is more legitimate. The Bills are actually favored one and a half. We would we would make them even a slightly bigger favorite, but only slightly. So I think this is really interesting. Find out whether the Bills are legit. Find out if the Eagles can bounce back. And so I'll just quickly the game I'll pick is the Panthers 49ers. Mm-hmm. That one looked um, good. You know, 
the Panthers, to me, they're moving on from Cam Newton. I don't see how, if you're the Panthers, you go back to Cam Newton. I think, you know, they've played extremely well under, was it Kyle Jones? He's Kyle uh, Allen. Kyle Allen, yeah, sorry. He's played extraordinarily yeah. well. I think they won all the games that he's played. Um, I think he, and he's played well. Um, yeah. I think the 49ers win that game. I think the 49ers are a very good football team. They're a very yeah. good defensive football yeah, team. Yeah, they are. They, well, and they're an exciting offensive football team as well. They, they, they do some really neat things in the passing game. They use, uh, Josh Hermsmeyer just wrote an article on 538 about how to use the fullback in an innovative way. They seem to have like about four or five core, uh, running backs that they can just kind of cycle in there. And, and they do a great job of doing yeah. this. We have the number six in the league. They're, they're five and a half point favorites this week against a very decent Carolina team. All right, guys. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. We do that live every Wednesday morning here, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. For Audie Weiner, who's in the classroom, for Shane Jensen, for Eric Bradlow, for Cade Massey. Many thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man. For Deion Simpkins, having you back in the studio, always good fun. And for assistant producer, Zach Drapkin, appreciate all the help. You guys come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.